instead of just saying, okay, I won't include this in the book because the meaning has changed. Instead, I said, you know, there are still some of us that know the difference out there. You may run into them. They may be a teacher or an editor or somebody else that cares about this and has an influence on you. So it's good to know that the expression originally had a different meaning. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. We've been doing some podcasts about language and politics and so on, and we're going to continue that discussion. But with Thanksgiving coming around, I wanted to do something a little different this time. Is that all right with you? Yeah, as long as it's not a turkey. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, by the way. We're getting ready for the holidays. Yeah, same to you. If you got any big plans for the holiday, are you going to be out of town? Or are you going to be at home? We have some friends coming over. Uh, there's actually a couple who annually decide to avoid their vegan daughter-in-law's Thanksgiving <laughs> and come and eat with us. Mm, <laughs> mm-hmm. We'll get some real bird. <laughs> well, and I make mincemeat with real meat in it from scratch. Uh-huh, yeah. Tastes fabulous, but it's uh, nothing like that stuff you get in a jar. Aha, uh-huh. excellent. My mincemeat recipe is on my website, by the way. Oh, well, that sounds like a great event. And uh, your meat-eating friends are going to be happy to avoid their vegan Thanksgiving alternative. Yeah, and I've been, um, for a while, I tried brining the turkey, which is always a terrible hassle. Put it in a bag and soak it in a salty brine for several days before... It was just a nightmare because the bag would always leak and you'd spill water all over the place. and What a mess. Hmm. And then I started dry brining it, where you just rub it inside and out with salt and let it sit for two or three days. And that worked really well. and Put some sage in it, too. Uh-huh. In past years, I've spatchcocked it, where you sever the spine and then flatten it out so that the dark meat and the white meat cook more evenly and white meat doesn't get so dried out but the um, new york times came up with an alternative method which i've been using on chickens so i'm going to try it on the turkey this time you disjoint the thigh joints and lay them out flat and then sit the roasting pan on top of a burner and brown the bottom of the bird with the thighs and the legs flattened out and before you put it in the oven that gives the dark meat a head start and then you get a much more even roast Wow. All right. Well, cooking tips on the podcast. That's great. Uh, sounds a little better than frying. I'm sure you've tried deep frying your bird, right? Oh, no, no way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've heard about too many garages being burned down. That's scary stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, um, on my want list is uh, one of these new oilless dry fryers that Consumer Reports recently raved about. It uses hot air and claim to get great potato and yam fries without any oil. Well, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's in the most recent issue of Consumer Reports. And the other Thanksgiving tradition that I do is making homemade cranberry sauce. You know, some people, unless it's round and it's got ridges in it from coming out of a can, it's not the real thing. (laughs) (laughs) 
but I like a more tart, real cranberry sauce. So mm. we buy fresh cranberries and uh, we add uh, sugar and orange juice. Yes. And just cook it down and I can it. And I make a big batch around this time of year when there's fresh cranberries all over. And I eat it uh, throughout the year. Now, I did something similar with cranberries uh, stovetop. I did not can them or anything like that. I just served them fresh last year. And there was a little thyme in the recipe, which was kind of interesting. But, you know, very good. Now, I'll speak on the vegetarian side. Uh, We'll probably be doing one of two things. We usually have a mushroom-based deep dish pie or a shepherd's pie, a vegetarian shepherd's pie, or stuffed cabbage rolls with mushroom brandy sauce. Uh-huh. Something like that. Stuff them with cornbread, a kind of a stuffing kind of thing. Right. Yeah, we use usually cornbread, too, because now I have to be gluten-free. Yeah. Well, it's all very good, and I hope you do have a great Thanksgiving there. Well, I wanted to continue talking about Thanksgiving because... You know, I think it's the season for giving thanks, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the book today. We've been neglecting talking about the book directly on the podcast, but it's the season. Towards the end of the year, we like to put the book on sale on our website. Did you know that? Oh, yes. A great Christmas tradition. Yes. Uh, So we have it on sale on our website. Uh, It's usually $19, and we always give free shipping. And no tax. And no tax, the correct. We are an Oregon company with no sales tax. So buyers out there should know that they can buy the book on our website for $15 through the end of the year. And we will still give the free shipping and we still will not be taxing the purchase. There's no sales tax. And we'll ship it out anywhere in the U.S. for free. And it makes a great gift for somebody with kids uh, going off to college or just uh, working on their English, and because it's entertaining as well as informative. It is entertaining, and I want to talk about some of these entries that are so entertaining, and I want to talk about how I use the book myself a little bit today. I find it useful. I've been a copy editor professionally for 25 years, and I still have to look some things up because... Not everybody can keep everything in the world straight in their heads, right? Yeah, not me, that's for sure. (laughs) Some people send me questions, uh, and I have to sometimes turn to my own book and look it up to remind myself what I said. Yeah. Before we get to talking about some of the entries, a couple more things. Um, If listeners want to buy the book and they're in the U.S., they can always call us. It's 800-322-2665. That's a phone number you can use. And our website is good, too. It's wmjasco.com. Those are two places where listeners could go to to buy the book. Like I said, it'll be free shipping and $15 through the end of the year. Uh, I always have to apologize. We get a lot of Canadian customers for the book. And unfortunately, we have to charge for shipping outside of the U.S. It just cannot work for us. The usurious international postage fees, it's gotten just worse and worse over time. I I recently made a photo book of the place we stayed in Italy in our recent trip, um, photographs of their house, and uh, made a nice thank you gift as an Apple book and sent it to them. And the postage cost more than the book did. Undoubtedly. (laughs) 
That's <laughs> true. That happens all the time here. We can't understand, especially we can't understand Canada because it's so easy for us to. Well, you're pretty close, right? You could just zip up there in a day or yep. make a day trip of it. Yeah. And it's easy to zip in and out and get over the border. And it all seems like everything should travel very freely back and forth. But uh, as soon as you hit the border with anything that's shipped, the price goes up astronomically. Well, uh, Paul, in the spirit of giving thanks, I want to thank you for writing the book and keeping the website all of these years. The book's been out since 2003, so we're approaching 15 years with the book. It's in the third edition. And the website's been up since 1997, is that right? That's right. So more than 20 years on the website. So the website is old enough to buy a drink now. It's 21, right? <laughs> uh, so can I start with a few of these that I always have to look up, things that I just can't remember? Um, I'll give a couple of examples. There are more in the book, but these just struck me immediately. What are ones that I can never keep straight? One of them is the word auger. It's a homonym, and I can never remember which one is the tool and which one is the soothsayer. Oh, you have another entry here that's concerning augers well and all goes well. Yeah. Both of those are common expressions, and I don't get those confused, although I might mess up the spelling on auger. But your entry says some folks who don't understand the word auger to foretell based on omens, try to make sense of the common phrase augurs well by mangling it into all goes well. <laughs> and augurs well is synonymous with it bodes well. Well, that's easy enough for me to keep straight. But your other entry is uh, concerning the augur and the augur. So an augur is an ancient Roman prophet. And as a verb, the word means foretell. Their love augurs well for a successful marriage. Don't mix this word up with auger, a tool for boring holes. Some people mishear the phrase augurs well as all goes well and mistakenly use that instead. So here you have an example of if you look up one of these entries, one of these two entries, you're actually going to get a little bit of the other entry also as a usage tip. Right. And we should mention that the augurs well is a U-R spelling and the digging tool or the boring tool is E-R. Right, right. So, yeah, an auger, E-R is the drilling tool. Another entry, and this is going to seem arbitrary, is why don't I ever get it straight that the correct expression is one and the same rather than one in the same? This is an acorn, isn't it? Yeah, you hear somebody say one and the same, and it could be heard as one in the same or one and the same. If you think about it, one and the same makes more sense, but it's also possible to construe a meaning, an idiomatic meaning for one in the same. I just always have to look that one up because I can never keep it straight, and I will actively write one in the same. And because I've read your book and because you did it, I remember that I have to double check and make sure I'm using that phrase correctly. Uh, there's another group of entries that I want to talk about, and that is the ones that I never knew until I read your manuscript for the book. Uh, one of them is the exception proves the rule. Would you please read to me your entry for exception proves the rule? I was trying to describe this to someone yesterday how this works and as I used my own words to describe what the origin of exception proves the rule is 
I found myself completely incapable of explaining it. Then I went back and reread your entry, and it was perfect. So would you please read it to me so we can all have it straight in our heads? Okay, this is one I had to research myself. Mm. The Latin original of this saying dates back over two millennia to Cicero. It means if you make an exception to a rule, a rule must exist. If you say, in case of fire, students may use the emergency exits, it is clear that the rule is that normally students are not supposed to use those exits. Few people understand this point, and they misuse the phrase, the exception proves the rule, to mean that a rule is not really a rule unless there is an exception to it. This makes no sense. It's better to simply avoid this misleading phrase. Uh, this is one in a category of expressions which has lost its original meaning, and almost no one understands it. And because it's got reworded in a way that doesn't make any logical sense, it would be better off if we just forgot about it altogether. Well, I liken it to uh, I couldn't care less versus I could care less. The expression I could care less doesn't have any logical meaning. If you could care less, that means that there's still some room down there, right? <laughs> Well, the problem is, though, that there are many people who still care about the original meaning of that phrase and feel very strongly that it should be, I couldn't care less. Yes. But uh, in the case of the exception proves the rule, there's hardly anybody that knows what it means. As I said, I had to look it up to find out what it was supposed to mean because it didn't make any sense to me. That's true. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It almost sounds like the expression should be, the exception disproves the rule. Yeah. It's no longer a rule because now there's an exception, right? Right. That's the only thing that would logically make sense. I suppose somebody could be thinking, you know, I never noticed this pattern until I noticed a disruption in it, which was an exception. That made me realize that usually people do the other thing. Right. So I suppose that could have some sort of logic. I guess, yeah. Uh, you know, another related development in language which uh, isn't in the book because it's not really appropriate, I don't think, but is feed a cold and starve a fever. Uh-huh. And people would talk about, let's see, if you have a cold, you're supposed to eat a lot. But if you have a fever, then you're supposed to try to starve it by not eating a lot. What if you have a cold with a fever? <laughs> How do you treat that? And in fact, the original saying was sterben, was from the word like German sterben, meant die. And the expression was, feed a cold and die of fever. Oh. Sterve, not starve. So we've anglicized it. Yeah, and got the prescription wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A modern translation would be, drink plenty of fluids. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. Okay. Well, another one that I had never known was begs the question. Here's another expression that people use incorrectly all the time to the point where actually it's hard for me to even call it an error. Right. Because people are using it so widely and even in edited material and in broadcast material, you'll hear begs the question used as a synonym for it, it raises the question. Mm -hmm. Um, however, it has an interesting origin also in logic. How does that work? Can you read that? 
An argument that improperly assumes as true the very point the speaker is trying to argue for is said in formal logic to beg the question. Here is an example of a question-begging argument. This painting is trash because it is obviously worthless. The speaker is simply asserting the worthlessness of the work, not presenting any evidence to demonstrate that this is in fact the case. Since we never use begs with this odd meaning, to improperly take for granted, in any other phrase, most people now suppose the phrase implies something quite different, that the argument demands that a question about it be asked, raises the question. Although using the expression in its original sense is now rare, using it in the newer sense will cause irritation among traditionalists. And this is a classic example of why my book is different from most other usage guides, which just tell you this is wrong, this is right. And in this case, I'd say, you know, the dominant meaning is the modern one, meaning raises the question. But there are still some people who know the old meaning and will say, well, when the senator took the floor, he gave a speech that really begged the question. Um, you know, didn't really give any reasoning behind it. You hear that occasionally. By far the more common meaning is raises the question. Um, so I would say that's probably the new meaning. But instead of just saying, okay, I won't include this in the book because the meaning has changed. Instead, I said, you know, there are still some of us that know the difference out there. You may run into them. They may be a teacher or an editor or somebody else that cares about this and has an influence on you. So it's good to know that the expression originally had a different meaning. Yes. And if you've written uh, begs the question and an editor asks you to change it to raises the question, you'll know why. <laughs> it begs the question actually in its origin has a different meaning and it's going to make some people bristle. Right. Fewer and fewer all the time, I guess. Now, we talked about an acorn before because uh, we have one and the same and one and the same, but we didn't talk about what an acorn is. We have a couple of podcasts that listeners could go back and listen to that are specifically on acorns, but they are just errors that are, we'll just say you mishear an expression. Somebody says it. And you hear something different when it's being said, and you construe a meaning that can make sense. And one of these is hone in and home in. And believe it or not, I went my entire life without anybody ever telling me that the correct expression is home in on a target, not you hone in on a target. Right. Now, fortunately, I, I think I don't really write this one. <laughs> I just say it. So it probably... Nobody ever noticed that I had this wrong my entire life until I found it in your manuscript. And henceforth, I will use the expression correctly, home in. So you home in on a target. The center of the target is the home. Right. Honing has to do with sharpening knives, not aim. Yeah. And this is a good example of an egg corn. By the way, an egg corn is named that because people are hearing the word A-C-O-R-N, uh, sometimes mistook it as E-G-G-C-O-R-N, because, if you know, you sharpen your aim, right? Yes. <laughs> you use sharp eyesight. Yes. We use the word sharp in a lot of ways that might make sense with this. So uh, this is one that is not widely accepted by critical readers, so it's good to know home in. Mm -hmm. It has a kind of um, staying at home <laughs> 
sound to it. But once you understand that home is like home base, it's the bullseye in the center of the target. That's home. Uh, then I think it's easier to remember. Well, it's probably confusing because home is used as a verb here. Right. And to home in is odd, but hone is a verb. Right. We know it as a verb already. So hone in grammatically makes sense to us too. But the expression is home in, and that's just the idiom. So we can just learn it and move forward and be happy we know it. Well, I'm happy I know it. Here's another one that uh, had escaped my attention for all those years until I came across it in your book, and that is Hark versus Harkin. And I'm going to have you read this one. Okay. One old use of the word hark was in hunting with hounds, meaning to turn the dogs back on their course, reverse direction. It was this use that gave rise to the expression hark back. It refers to returning in thought to an earlier time or returning to an earlier discussion. That tie-dyed shirt harks back to the days we used to go to rock festivals together. The expression is not harkens back. Although hark and harken can both mean listen, only hark can mean go back. Ah, yes, and I never knew that. Because harken back is so frequently used. It is a common error. Yes. To the point where I'm not sure if we're just going to be changing the expression to harken back, and that's just going to have equal acceptance. What do you think about that? I don't know. I don't hear it too often. I haven't been able to trace it. Yeah, I mean, maybe it'll just disappear entirely because hark back or harken back is not used much at all. Maybe someday in the future we will hark back to the days when we used to hear that expression. <laughs> the whole uh, word hark and harken, that just sounds so archaic, doesn't it? And by the way, when the dogs got involved with this, it made me think of the old nursery name, hark, hark, the dogs do bark. Oh, yeah, right. And of course, in that case, it means listen. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, it's not a word that is used. We hark back, but there's no other use for the word hark, is there? No. When we're talking about acorns, I was thinking of a couple in the book that you made cartoons for, which are among my favorites. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about those. Uh, one of them is the uh, pair B-A-R-E and B-E-A-R. Oh, yeah. Which very, very commonly gets swapped. I see that all the time. And it's usually pretty funny because um, people will say, bear with me and spell it B-A-R-E. And it sounds like let's get undressed together. Yes. Let's head over to the nudist colony. <laughs> so you chose a picture of a very well-covered up woman holding hands with a bear. <laughs> <laughs> and the caption you wrote was, no one wondered what she had said. It was B-E-A-R with me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, she had the occasion to use the expression bear with me, right? She was literally walking around with a bear. Yeah, the bear is with me. Yeah. <laughs> well, a woman walks into a bar, not a stripper bar, but one that accepts bears. Well, I'm glad you appreciated that one. That's one of my favorites, too. And I will say it might have been the first cartoon that I dreamed up for the book. I'm not entirely sure about that, but it was certainly among the first, say, five or so that I thought of. When I was making the cartoons for the book, we had the manuscript. 
And at the time, your website had a few old Victorian-style line art illustrations. Right. Uh, you had a wise owl, I remember. Right. What else did you... A donkey for the mistakes. <laughs> a donkey. Yes. When you had the correct expression, there was a Victorian-style line art depiction of a very wise owl. And for the incorrect one, you had a donkey. And I was kind of charmed by that. And uh, thinking of the aesthetic for the book, I thought, let's try to carry that over to the book. How are we going to get some Victorian line art into here? And then I just started thinking about how that could all work if we did some captions for some of these things that went with the entries in the book. And I just happened across this picture of this woman walking around with a bear. (laughs) And I thought, hey, let's see if there's a way to fit that in with the bear bear entry you didn't have google images to help you then either (laughs) no (laughs) that was a great find yeah another one that i'm fond of is the one on scone versus sconce oh yeah there are a lot of websites that are offering uh wall scones for sale (laughs) (laughs) i could hardly believe it when i first ran across this and then i started looking and there are a lot of people that think that a sconce is actually a scone now wait a second if you like the caption for the cartoon there uh and you find it amusing I find your entry amusing. Would you read your entry before you read the caption for the cartoon? Okay. If you fling a jam-covered biscuit at the wall and it sticks, the result may be a wall scone. But if you're describing a wall-mounted light fixture, the word you want is sconce. (laughs) Okay. That sets the record straight. So you found this picture of four little girls having a tea party at a table, and one of them is saying, so... Then I said to her, scone tastes more like a sconce to me. (laughs) Well, okay. I'm glad you like that one. It never struck me as one of my very favorites, but you've mentioned it a few times over the years. So I'm really glad you like that one. And um, I'm amused by it, too. You know, I wanted to write it uh, more conversationally. So then I says to her, scone tastes more like a sconce to me. And then I thought, well, I'm putting this into a common errors in English teacher's book. I know somebody's going to gripe, you know, why don't you make it more formal? <laughs> so then I said to her instead of I says to her, uh-huh. but uh, if people were speaking around a tea party. I'll bet you you'd hear it just as likely hear somebody say I says to her, you know, ah, maybe not. Maybe you might hear it more at a poker party than a tea party. Well, let me throw in a third one here. Um where uh, is another one that's pretty silly and that will get you laughed at is mixing up deities with diets yeah. or dieties. Yeah. Spelling it as dieties, uh, deities and dieties. Of course, diet, there's no such thing as dieties, but it sounds like it might be a spelling of diets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The gods are the deities, of course, mm-hmm. after the Latin deus. Uh, and you put a picture of the god Mercury, interestingly uh, posed on a wharf in front of a ship. Now, I'm <laughs> not quite sure what that's about, because if you can deliver something by air, why would you be loading stuff up on a ship? Or maybe he's collecting the goods from abroad and then flying them a short distance for Amazon to somebody's house. Uh, maybe he just flew across the ocean and just taking a little break on a dock there. <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> well, anyway, he has a very buff body, as uh, usually the case with Greek gods. And you say, just four weeks on the South Beach diet, and the deity looked great. <laughs> well, he did look great, I got to say. That's a fine-looking deity in that picture. I'm not sure the South Beach diet is still so famous as it was when the, that cartoon was created, but it still makes sense. Maybe in the next edition, we can update it to some other fad diet and make it more current. But I will keep the deity, because the deity still is going to look great, I'm sure. Uh, and speaking of dieting, um, we won't be doing any of that over Thanksgiving, will we? <laughs> I think it's our feast day, right? We can all take a break from that. Well, actually, you know, diet has two different meanings to diet. It's uh, restrictive, but you can say my diet consists of um, donuts and Snickers bars, and it would still be correct usage, although not very healthy. Yes, that's true. You don't have to have a healthy diet to have a diet. Um, well, Paul, let's do some Thanksgiving leftovers on our next episode. All right. I love leftovers. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's one of the best parts about Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving to everyone who happens to be downloading the podcast before Thanksgiving this year. We're going to continue on and do some Thanksgiving leftovers next time. Okay. So long, Tom. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.